Hi, and welcome to Things of Interest. I'm Sophia Franks. And I'm Serena Chen. And as we've actually got into the habit of recording these more than a week than they're due out, um, I need to give you some context about why we're recording this right now. So overall, this episode is going to be about the alt-right. Um, and that sounds really bad. Well, because they are. Um, but we're going to be talking about their skills in manipulating narratives, social media, and how they can very effectively um, adjust their messaging to our local narratives. I think the NRA over the last few days has been a really good example of that. Mm. So today is eight days after the events that happened in Christchurch. Um, a word that is spelt with only one capital C at the beginning. I've seen it multiple times written by Americans with both the Christ and the church capitalized, which is wild considering that the attacks happen in mosques. Um, it's been fairly horrifying for both of us as New Zealanders. Um, I have not like close friends, but my old Arabic teacher used to attend that mosque um, when she moved to Christchurch. Uh, she no longer lives there, thankfully, which is really good, but we are connected. Um, there's sort of a joke in New Zealand that we're only really like two degrees of separation away from each other. Um, rather than the six degrees of separation you see in the rest of the world. And so everyone knows someone who has been intimately affected by the attack. And I think we both are having a lot of feelings about this. And so it makes sense to have a bigger discussion about how we should interact with people who are shitty about things like this, by people who are outwardly Islamophobic. Like, I saw someone on Twitter referring to the Christchurch attack as a false flag event. And that is horrifying. And it's really difficult not to engage and get drawn into these like narrative circles where they try, where people from the alt-right, people who are intent on spreading discord and hate against Islamic people. When I think it's important to contextualize this for people who aren't New Zealanders, like, a lot of Māori and Pacifica people are Islamic, like Sonny, Sonny Bill Williams, who's one of our All Blacks right now, I think. Hmm. Um, he's Muslim. It's part of our culture. It's not an us and them approach. And I think Jacinta Ardern has done a really good job of contextualizing this, but also we need to be really careful about what voices we center in the outcome of this narrative. Fraser Anning in Australia has had much, much more media time than he really should have, including a live stream of his press conference following the fact like that he released a um, press release blaming Muslims for what happened to them and then punching a minor twice. Like his press conference was live streamed after that. Like we don't, that's not how we need to engage with that. But I am probably going to rant a lot anyway in this episode. So I think I will pass on over to Serena now because I think, Serena, you have a lot more intelligent thoughts and context and knowledge surrounding how our online experiences are manipulated by people who want to spread discord and hate against marginalized groups. Yeah, um, I'm not sure if intelligent would... The way I describe it, I don't think any of us are operating well after the events. But it is the the kind of communities, the kind of cultures surrounding the this quote unquote alt right is is something that I'm familiar with just growing up on the internet, and it's something that I've been exposed to just by nature of being extremely online and. It's something that I 
don't think most people, including our media and our journalists and our politicians, it's something that most people don't quite understand and that's doing us a disservice and they're using the fact that we don't understand how their culture works to manipulate the public narrative and that's extremely frustrating to me. But before we get into it, I should probably clarify that when we say words like alt-right or sometimes it's called the manosphere, this is a loose collection of internet groups that encompasses like white supremacists, it encompasses gamer gators, it encompasses incels, MRAs, pickup artists, and these are all kind of very loosely defined groups with blurry edges and a lot of ambiguity in what they want and what they don't want. And that ambiguity is is a part of their strategy. It's um it's important that we recognize that this this ambiguity is a is a way for people in these groups to distance themselves from the more extreme versions of their groups. And these are these groups have no like one leader, they have, you know, figureheads, sure. But they're self-organized. Um, they pop up and then disappear again for specific uh, operations, they'll call them. And they they mask a lot of their toxicity through irony, through memes and jokes, through a lot of euphemisms, a lot of coded words, um, a lot of bat signaling, really, and a lot of general cynicism around the current media landscape. And I was I was thinking about so I've been um, in a deep dark pit because <laughs> apparently how I deal with trauma is just doing a lot of academic research because I don't know it like it's a way for me to emotionally distance myself and feel like I'm doing something productive I don't know I should probably talk to someone about this but anyway over the past week I have been knee-deep in research reports about this alt-right and about how they manipulate media and uh, how they manipulate public discourse and and yeah it's it's so frustrating to watch journalists do their job with you know the best of intentions and watch them be completely unaware that they're they're helping the alt-right, really, by um, by kind of legitimizing conspiracy theories through publishing them, to, even to debunk them. So this is a this is a huge, huge web, tangled mess of shit. And honestly, I'm not sure where to start. Where do you think we should start, Sophia? Oh my god, <laughs> what a question. Um. I think a really interesting thing to talk about, um, I'm just trying to look up some good writing I've seen on why it matters that the guy played video games. Here it is. So this is from um, Thulu on Twitter. Um, and Z writes, Folks are tripping over each other to claim that the Christchurch shooter turning to video games after being bullied as a kid is irrelevant to the narrative of the shooting, but in a dramatic reversal of my previous positions, I'm going to assert that it does actually matter. But it doesn't matter because of the actual video games, but because of gamers. 
especially in this day and age when you can't hope to venture into gaming YouTube without literally tripping over white supremacists or reactionaries, and where the biggest names in the game community like PewDiePie or Boogie are either actively white supremacist or utterly complicit in its spread, a distinction without a difference. Every single gaming subreddit or Discord I've wandered into, I've had to carefully tiptoe around massive minefields of reactionary rhetoric disguised as bants or just guys being dudes. Mm-hmm. It's almost impossible to find a gaming space that isn't dominated by shitty, skeezy dudes who make the jokes and then, haha, but really, the fucking Jews, am I right? Not only do you have to actively look for it, you have to know what you're looking for, which a lot of disaffected young men won't. The default state of gaming is a recruiting ground for fucking Nazis. It is. It is. It is a recruiting ground. And this is the thing that the general public does not understand, is that when when we talk about, you know, the seemingly meaningless hand signals that they do, when we talk about the memes that they spread, the, the in-jokes, like, that is not for us. That is for their new recruits. That is for the people who are vulnerable enough and susceptible enough to that kind of messaging. That is for the people who are are bored enough or disillusioned enough to then go and do a Google search for, oh, what does this mean? Like, what is this in-joke? And when they do that search, when they start to then enter those communities, that is how they get recruited. And that's the thing that, like, people don't get. It's like all their friends are reading Jordan Peterson, and so they do. And Jordan Peterson has personally sort of said, like, oh, you know, I'm not a white supremacist. But he also recognizes that, like, he benefits from white supremacists. Mm. And he's talked about, like, how people respond to crowds and, like, you know, subconscious ways and sort of positions himself as being better than that. Mm -hmm. But either he's, like, actively conscious of the fact that, like, his works are used to enable and support Nazis and extreme right-wing rhetoric leading to violence – or he's like much stupider than he thinks he is, and neither of those is really okay. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. For someone who writes that much about it, I think it's inexcusable to pretend that you are unaware that you are actively benefiting from like just Nazis. Like you're benefiting from Nazis. <laughs> and um, Wickles has stopped selling his book in New Zealand, which is a really good move, and what I'm a little bit worried about them about. I think like. We can often feel overly complacent in New Zealand because we're like, oh, yeah, we don't have Nazis here. Like, we're not that racist. And it's because, like, our closest comparator is Australia, Mm. where it's just, like, overtly racist. And just because it's not obvious doesn't mean it's not there, right? Like, Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this is the other thing to recognize as well, because when, like, when you look at Jordan Peterson's work, it's bland, boring ideas that are just like, hey, maybe you should motivate yourself and do something maybe you should you know it's yeah for a for a dive into his work like i can thoroughly recommend reading madeline chapman's pieces on the spinoff mm-hmm. um she has one that's called like the week i lived as jordan peterson mm-hmm. uh that i think really effectively sort of encapsulates the fact that he says like basic self-help shit and real then, basic yeah yeah and then provides like window dressing that feeds directly into right-wing rhetoric and this is the important thing, like when I say that the, these all these different groups within the alt right are kind of blurry edges, and they like they don't really define. Like they're all different, and they have like different kind of levels of uh, 
extremism, I guess. But they all kind of feed each other. And Jordan Peterson is a great example of what is essentially a gateway drug into this more radicalized community. And because Jordan Peterson's work is so boring and so plain and mild, he can hide behind that. And the people who are using him to recruit can hide behind the fact that his work is largely not that objectionable and fine, I guess. And it is that fact that they're hiding behind to recruit more people. Something that I've been thinking about within the past few days. Um, So to try and take my mind off of the horrors, uh, I've been listening to a podcast about epidemiology. Uh, I would highly recommend this podcast. It's great. It's called This Podcast Will Kill You. And it's an amazing podcast where there's uh, two people named Erin. They're both epidemiologists and they're both disease ecologists and each episode they break down an infectious disease of some kind so um recently i listened to the episode about measles it was horrifying but super enlightening and they break down both the the science and the biology of how the pathogen works and also the kind of history behind it and how it has spread um throughout different communities throughout history and it's it's just generally like a really great podcast i would really recommend it um especially if you're if you're into that nerdy shit um but because i've been on a media diet of this uh epidemiology podcast and also like knee deep in reading about the alt-right i had a thought This whole alt-right kind of phenomena, what if we approached it not as like a national security issue, which is how a lot of people are approaching it, but as an, as an epidemic, like the ideas are the pathogens, the hosts are the people who are spreading the memes and the people who are being radicalized, the environments are, you know, the social media websites, boards like 4chan and 8chan, and the vectors of which this disease spreads are the media manipulation techniques and the the in-jokes and the signaling. And, and I was thinking about this because epidemiology provides a really nice kind of framework to think about all of these things. They look at not only the, the pathogen and the disease itself, but they acknowledge the environment in which the disease flourishes. They acknowledge the, the types of hosts that are more susceptible. And there's this idea of immunity as well. And so I guess what I'm interested in kind of getting at is, like, is there a way that we can essentially vaccinate the population, build an environment and a population that is not susceptible to these manipulation techniques and these hateful ideas. I don't know. I don't know what I'm saying. I'm just... Yeah, no, it's... um. So I would suspect it would come from, like, stronger community links because often the people who get drawn into the alt-right... Um, it's something we see a lot in TERF communities. Mm-hmm. Um, so TERFs are trans-exclusionary, radical, and then, like, in 
air quotes feminist because you're not a feminist if you exclude trans women from mm-hmm. your equation. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of the way that they get people to come around to their ideas is something called love bombing, which is essentially like they pay a lot of attention to you. They compliment you. They t- like, they say nice things to you all the time and you just, you feel like really warm and fuzzy inside and you feel really good because these people are like super nice to you. And maybe they're nicer to you than your current friends who like, if you express oh, something wow. like, I'm not sure about trans women, they're like kind of shitty to you. Right. And that's a lot of the way that people get radicalized is they feel like they've found a community. And this is how people end up in cults as well. Right. Yes. Like, yeah, they feel that they've found a community that accepts them, that loves them where they belong and Mm. it's just it's warm and fuzzy and you want to be around these people and even if you're not totally sure about their ideas like they're so nice to you you want to belong and i think that's often how um disaffected young men end up in alt-right communities how anyone really ends up in like these extremely nazi communities is they feel people are nice to them Mm -hmm. and so they want to spend time around these people and even if they say stuff like I don't know about the Jews, like, you still spend time around them because, like, that's just one thing. And otherwise they're really nice to you and that's, right. like, worth wanting to spend time around them. Mm. Um, and it's kind of almost the – I don't really know how to phrase this. Essentially the way I approach friendships is some if someone says a shitty thing, I will try and call them in. Unless that shitty thing indicates, like – behaviors that and ideas that are actively harmful to me mm. right so it's like if someone's like makes a joke about like women not being able to do math i'll be like hey man that's uncool like don't make jokes like that please like don't don't do that <laughs> thank you do you want to talk more about how women can actually do math let me present the woman who won the fields medal thank you we're good um whereas if someone experience uh expresses like Oh, like really transphobic stuff. And particularly if they're a band, because men are much more likely to be violent surrounding transphobic behaviors, I'll just be like, okay, um, that's not a good opinion. Here are the reasons. You can continue to hold that opinion. I will block you on every social media channel. Mm-hmm. Like, this is not my job to call you in because it is dangerous to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's the flip side of that is tolerating what you think are, you know, not great behaviors or ideas because you get so much out of that relationship. And it's why it's really difficult to leave abusive relationships. It's why it's really difficult to come out to your friends, right? Like, Mm. because when you're first coming out to your friends, like you get a lot out of that friendship, but you also know that if they're like shitty and homophobic, then you won't be friends anymore. And you're like, man, I don't know if like, if they'll still accept me because of that. And often like, certainly in my experience when I was young and coming out, I put the weight and the onus of that onto me. Mm. Like, it would be my fault if we weren't friends anymore. And I think it's really hard to kind of draw the line between that in quite a clear way. But to my mind, they're very similar behaviors in the way that, like, you want the overall feeling of warmth and goodness that you get from that friendship, even if there are shitty things inside of it. You want to, you want to tolerate the shitty things. And the longer you tolerate those things, the more you're exposed to them and the more they sort of start to take root in your brain as an idea. Mm. You know what my general rule for that is? With mm. the calling out versus calling in. Mm. Um, That's going to sound like, ugh, like an old person. But honestly, online, don't engage. Um, I just... Like, especially sometimes I will engage if it's like a private one-to-one chat, 
sure, but I've just got a blanket rule now that it, like, either don't engage or, like, say what I, what I mean to say and just unfollow the conversation, just get out mm. of there. Um, in real life, though, it's completely the other way around. So uh, when I'm not sure whether to engage or not, in real life, I will almost always pull that person aside, say something, speak up. Because, I mean, as much as I value online connections, there's just something that it's just very easy to dehumanize the other and be dehumanized online. Whereas if you're, you know, flesh and blood in real life, right next to the person um, in meat space, and they say something shitty, and you say, hey, and that's that's kind of shitty. That just has so much more weight coming from you, like a, a human being that they can see in front of them. So that's been my general rule. But something that I would like everyone to understand is that trolling is a thing and it is a thing that like when you say it people kind of know what you mean but then they fall for it all the time okay so trolling is when someone says something um they might be spouting a conspiracy theory they might be saying something extremely offensive using slurs a lot of inflammatory language um, something to provoke a response. And because what they're saying is so wrong, people feel compelled to reply because, you know, we're, we're all good people and we want to do the right thing and we want each other, we want all of us to be doing the right thing. So people reply and then they get into these debates. And I hear a lot of, um, a lot of people saying, hey, like, some people really legitimately believe this and it's my job to debate them and, you know, free marketplace of ideas, um, the best ideas should come out, blah, blah, blah. And I just want to, like, scream at the top of my lungs that that is not the point. Them being right or wrong is not the point. Them actually believing what they're saying or the more likely option is that they don't believe what they're saying at all and they're just trying to get a rise out of you. That is not the point. Like, even if they're obviously wrong, they want you to debate them because the act of you debating them raises the profile of the shitty thing that they're saying. I think I, um, I was listening, listening to a podcast yesterday where one of the hosts was sort of saying, like, I live my life knowing that I will get scammed and tricked one day because there is always someone better than me at a thing out there. Mm -hmm. I think that was a really important thing for me to hear because I kind of been like doing this thing in my brain where I'm like, no, I'm smart. Like, I'll be fine. Like, yeah. I'm good. I won't get scammed. I know what those emails are. I know what these offerings are. Mm. Like, I know what an MLM looks like, multi-level marketing scheme looks like. I'm good. I've seen yeah. that episode of Brooklyn Nine-Nine. <laughs> um, Nutri-boom. <laughs> boom, boom. Boom, boom. Um, and then it was just like, well, actually, I don't necessarily know that like i'm probably gonna get tricked at some point there's definitely been times in melbourne where like 
um, one of the pseudo-religious people has, like, pushed a bracelet onto me and then been like, you have to give me $20 now. And I've been like, oh, okay. Please go away. I don't oh, want to have this interaction anymore. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, like, yeah, that's, that's absolutely a trick as well. And I think it's... I think it's important to remember that the act of engaging gives those ideas legitimacy. And I think something really interesting to look at how this has changed is looking at how the NRA has tried to engage in the New Zealand narrative. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And how and how initially they they tried like all the same tactics that they usually try and sort of did the like oh god, good but man you're with a right. gun. Well, no no no, yeah, they did the good man with a gun line yeah. and New Zealanders made fun of them. <laughs> Mm. And the NRA didn't really know what to do because, like, you know, they post all their stuff sort of overnight in New Zealand and then we come in and be like, well, okay, like, <laughs> <laughs> look at this nerd. Um, but then they realized what our core narratives as a country were and they started posting things like, you know, a man with a gun going hunting and it's like New Zealanders have rights to you know, kill wild pigs or whatever, protect our land from animals, like as opposed to from people. And that's something that started resonating with people. And that's something that started getting retweeted and shared on Facebook. Mm-hmm. And it was really interesting slash horrifying for me to watch that change, to go from like these these extremely American narratives where we were like, well, okay, like, I think in New Zealand we don't have a good man with a gun. We have, like, a good woman with the power to change laws. Yeah. Like, we have the good man with an FPOS machine, right? Like, that's that's what we do. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> um, and then they found, like, this vein. They found, like, what matters to us. Like, mm-hmm. you started using, like, extremely New Zealand um, imaging and ideas. And then it was like, mm-hmm. oh, hope this doesn't find traction i don't think it will in the near future but i really hope it doesn't start to find traction here i think it's already found traction um because i've seen like friends of mine from i don't know like intermediate and primary school they've been sharing a lot of a lot of stuff around those narratives so like you know having a gun as a hobby kind of thing i'm really admiring the history of it uh like pests and yeah but also semi-automatics are still banned now so right right but again it like the the details don't matter right the facts don't matter um and and what really horrified me to open up one of these uh and i wouldn't recommend this to our listeners or anyone because it's it's really easy to get sucked in but what really horrified me is when you open up one of these posts and you see you know the literally thousands and thousands tens of thousands of likes and shares and like thousands of comments more than half the time when i hovered over when i went into a profile of someone who was supporting that pro-gun narrative they were not from new zealand yeah um and especially in facebook that's something or online in general in any kind of open public discussion that's not something that you can see very clearly because you just see their name and you you see their profile picture and i don't know why guy in his 20s could be from new zealand who knows and it's it's hard to to really identify the fact that we are being brigaded and we don't we can't see it like it's it's hard to identify and brigading is a thing that is very common within these alt-right circles where they will like spin up some kind of operation they call them and they will get 
a whole lot of people, mostly like people who say they're doing it ironically, and then a small group of people who are doing it, you know, for real, because they believe in the cause or whatever. But again, facts don't matter. Like what you believe in doesn't matter. That's the whole idea of 4chan. What you believe in does not matter. And so you get a whole bunch of people being like, all right, time to spin up some fake accounts and like wade into these public discussions with an agenda. Sometimes it's a directed harassment campaign, which we've seen in a lot in the Gamergate days and continuing on from there. Um, sometimes it is to sway the public discourse and to sway the minds of well-intentioned everyday people who don't know that there is like they're being they don't know they're being brigaded and they don't know what that means and i think it's i mean i'm i'm exceedingly proud of new zealand politicians for yes. just not having any time for this narrative so like i've pulled up um oh an interview with judith collins yeah i saw that was good met with lobbyists from the nra and they were like what about your right to bear arms and she was like bugger off yeah like you don't we don't have a right to bear arms it's a privilege like piss off i yeah. don't have time for this and it's like i mean it's very new zealand to have even like your right-wing politicians be like no thanks <laughs> and it's just it's fantastic like to see the initial response to the NRA I think particularly um a lot of the time before they sort of got canny with their messaging was New Zealanders would just be like you're not even from here like what are you saying mm -hmm. <laughs> you don't go here you don't get to say these <laughs> don't things go here. Yeah. um and then like our initial plan was to ban sort of semi-automatic weapons in 10 days. And then the NRA spoke up and we banned them in six days. Like this is messaging or not. And I understand that like this awareness of our values mm -hmm. by the NRA is kind of stressful, but we've still taken the step and banned semi-automatic weapons. We're just like, yeah, no, no, thanks. Mm. Um, <laughs> Like, the guy who chased away a shooter in a mosque had an FPOS machine. Like, hopefully one of those chunky ones and not an iPad. Um, but, like, that's that's how we do it. And, like, I'm, I'm really proud of New Zealand, yeah. but I'm also, like, really fucking done with every other country weighing in oh my on God. what we did and didn't do. And, like, how we're, like... Right. Like, okay, okay. Our response to the shooting has been so good, and I'm so proud of us. Mm-hmm. But you can't use that in other countries to be like, New Zealand is this perfect country with no racism. But there's so much racism here. Like, there's a reason that the shooter could hold these views, could buy a semi-automatic weapon, could talk to, I presume, his friends about his views in mm -hmm. New Zealand, and it was okay. Like, we're real racist, guys. We've got a lot of problems. Yeah. Like, We've made some good moves here, but it doesn't, like, avoid all of the deep-seated issues we have in New Zealand. And we've got, like, huge amounts of Islamophobia here. Like, mm -hmm. that's not good. <laughs> There's, like, some really anti-Semitic people in New Zealand, and they excuse it under the guise of, like, this idea that we don't have very many Jewish people in New right. Zealand. But actually we do, and anti-Semitic views aren't cool. And, like, I know people from university who would just make like really shitty jokes about jewish people and like i let that happen because i didn't know any better because i came from a small town where there were like 
Christians and non-Christians. And those were the two kind of groups we had. Yeah. There was a big Catholic church. It was a whole thing. And I'm just, I'm not, I'm not interested in having Americans praise us for doing the bare minimum. Yeah, I'm just not interested in, like, Americans opening their mouths about this (laughs) at all, to be honest. Like, and Australians have so many hot takes about it. Yeah, Australians as well. I, I, it's, I've just been feeling like real pissy about seeing a lot of Australian media. Um, like seeing comments from like that Fraser Anning guy, seeing comments from what that Scott Morrison guy. And it's like, literally y'all can all fuck off. And maybe it's just cause, you know, in the heat of the moment and I feel angry about everything right now, but this is not a uniquely New Zealand problem. But having so many international voices, especially from the US and the UK. Like, if you're not Islamic, I don't care. Yeah. Like, I think the international Islamic community has a lot to say in these instances. And I yeah. think that's very valuable. And we should be listening. We have a lot to, to learn. Both them, yeah, to both them and the New Zealand Islamic community and understanding the many different viewpoints that people will have on things like um, Friday, there was a movement called uh, Headscarves for Harmony. Mm-hmm which was started and run by a non-Islamic woman. Mm. Great. Mm -hmm. Um, And some Islamic people in New Zealand were like, yeah, I think it would be really nice to have a visible sign of people supporting us. And some Islamic people in New Zealand were like, that's weird and essentialist because not all Muslim people wear headscarves. So Mm -hmm. what are you doing? And I think it's important to understand and listen to a range of viewpoints from a range of Islamic people internationally and within our country. But if you're not Islamic, if you don't have a connection to this, like, fuck off. Yeah. (laughs) I'm so mad about the number of hot takes I've read. And I just do not have time for it. And maybe it's because I've been steeped in the the kind of culture of the alt-right and what they use to, to manipulate media. It's hard to... And this is the whole point of it, right? Is that it becomes so hard to filter what is a genuine um, take on a situation and what is a disingenuine thought piece just to stir shit up. Yeah. And I think um, there have been some journalists who have written obliquely, like not officially, but on Twitter about um, the manifesto because part of their job was to read it, Mm. um, which don't. Read Don't it, read it. Firstly. Um, and some journalists have to do this because of their job, and some journalists had to watch the video because mm. it's part of their job. And I am so sorry for them, and I really hope their businesses are supporting them to go to counseling. Mm. Um, but they were saying, like, their job is to read alt rate manifestos. They are steeped in this culture and this knowledge, and they could not tell what was real and what wasn't in mm. that manifesto. They could not tell. And, like, even in some instances, they were very unsure what was a joke, an in-joke to be made to the rest of his community and what was a genuine thought that this man had. Mm. And it's just like, well, that's that's the danger in and of itself, right? Like, yeah. this isn't even, you know, us trying to separate facts from fiction anymore. Mm. It's, as you were saying, like, the facts don't matter. Mm. 
And this is the scary thing, is that when you start to read too many of these things, you start, like, your brain starts to change. Um, a couple of, oh, about a month ago now, there was a, a report done by Casey Newton from The Verge on people who moderated Facebook posts. Mm, yeah. It's been a really good article. It's extremely good. Um, but also horrifying. <laughs> extremely horrifying. It profiled people um, in this company called Cognizant, uh, which is a company that Facebook kind of outsources all of their moderation um, tasks to. And so these poor people, they they watch the worst of the worst. They watch beheadings. They, they watch people getting killed, dying. They watch... Uh, they look at a lot of Nazi propaganda, they, a lot of conspiracy theories, basically anything that gets reported they have to make a decision on they have to read comprehend and make a decision on and what this journalist has found is that a lot of people doing this moderation work who are steeped in the horrors of the internet they start to believe the conspiracies they start to really think that the earth is flat they start to really think that vaccinations cause autism they start to really question what is real and what is not. And the tactic that the quote-unquote alt-right uses to kind of disassociate words from meaning and from reality is a tactic to get everyone to trust facts less, to question everything. And when you question everything, then nothing is real, right? And when nothing is real, then the narrative is just so much more pliable. It's so much easier to manipulate and to sway when no one believes anything is real. Mm. And so this is the insidious, self-fulfilling prophecy, this kind of feedback loop that builds and builds on itself, is that, you know, the people who make up the alt-right are already very usually disillusioned white young men, um, who don't trust mainstream media and to kind of prove uh, the failings of mainstream media, they go into this kind of like, they, they flood the internet with irony and with misinformation and with conspiracy theories that then erodes the general public's trust in truth and fact at all. And as that public trust is eroded, they get more and more people onto their side who don't think anything is real anymore. Or, you know, and it's just, it just feeds and feeds into itself. And so this is why I was thinking a lot about modeling these kinds of uh, ideas as viruses, essentially, because it's not like before when you were talking about how, oh, you know, I think I'm smart and intelligent and I can separate truth from fiction and I can recognize when there's a good argument and when there's a bad argument. Like, that's what I thought for all of my life too. And I used to wade in on these debates just like, no tomorrow, like, whatever, these people are wrong, someone is wrong on the internet and I need to prove them wrong. But it's gotten to a point where I realize now that these ideas aren't just uh, playthings to be inspected to be opened up and torn apart and deconstructed. These ideas of viruses 
And if some of these ideas catch you when you're susceptible to it, then you start believing in conspiracy theories. And it's not because you choose to, it's because that they, they are that infectious. And a lot of the times, and I think a lot of like really well-meaning people who have nothing to do with the alt-right, they will find themselves spreading misinformation, spreading um, this kind of viral narrative, spreading memes or jokes that are, you know, outside of the context of white supremacy, like kind of quirky and funny, and they don't realize the the baggage that all the shit comes with. And so when it comes to like these ideas, I really think we should be treating them like a virus. Like we need to quarantine it. We need to disengage from it. We need to report and block and delete at will. And we need to build up some kind of public community where we can correctly identify and recognize when something like that is happening so we don't engage because we still want to keep good faith and we still want to live in a world where facts are real (laughs) and matter right and so to stop this kind of thought from polluting our public communities on our online communities we have to find like really good ways of identifying these tactics and shutting it down does that make sense it does, yeah. I just, I don't, I don't have a solution. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I do personally have, like, things that raise red flags. Hmm. And when I see certain things, like certain words being spoken, certain, you know, hand gestures in the context of, like with the okay hand gesture, and them appropriating. Okay, here's something else to talk about. Mm-hmm. The alt-right, uh, this is another tactic they use, in that they reappropriate and appropriate and recontextualize seemingly innocent things. So they had an okay hand gesture that was a joke, and is still a joke, by the way, and is used by a lot of people to be like, <laughs> triggered libs, they think that this hand gesture means that we're Nazis. Look at how crazy they are. And then a smaller group of people who are legitimately using that gesture to signal to other people that they are Nazis. Mm. And they do this with, I've noticed they recontextualize and appropriate a lot of social justice language. So around like social justice language, there's a lot of words for oppression, um, for oppressed groups and they take that language and they reuse it in a way to say that young white men are the real oppressed group. And Mm. when they take that language and use it in such a way, they basically disallow the rest of us from using it like it was meant to be used, which is this extremely powerful way of silencing us. Because with these languages, with, with this, like, this language and with specific words that mean specific things like when you give something a name then it has power and when you give the certain things that we experience as as minorities or oppressed groups you know when we give these experiences a name it gives it legitimacy and power and truth 
and it gives us a common language to talk about our experiences and that's extremely powerful and uh and really really good especially to kind of communicate to the to the wider world the specifics of our own everyday struggle and so when these groups then take these words and then appropriate it into meaning something else they effectively silence all of these oppressed groups by disallowing the use of those words because they can't use them anymore we can't use it anymore mm. and it's incredibly mm. effective yeah yeah well i mean that's why we're seeing like a resurgence of nazism and nationalism right like because their language because their messaging is incredibly effective because and we've talked about like how the world probably isn't worse it's just we have like unprecedented access to information right Mm. and that causes a lot of fear like newspapers sell fear tv shows like news shows show fear and by tapping into that fear, nationalism and Nazism gets a foothold mm. because they say, like, be afraid. Mm. And um, I remember, like, one of the reasons I'm so mad about, like, foreigners providing hot takes on New Zealand politics right now. And it's because I think this act was, like, a white supremacist act and... I want to say that very clearly right now. The shootings were white supremacy in action. Mm. But I don't think you can ignore the growth of white supremacy in New Zealand without pairing it with the xenophobia that is enabled by the New Zealand First Party, right? Like, you cannot accept the growth of white supremacy in New Zealand without, like, this fear of migrants that is enabled by a political party that is mostly non-white. And I think that's very unique to us and a very, like, is a polit- like academically interesting tension, but it's also just slightly horrifying, right? Like, like I think let me look up the list MPs from New Zealand first. Give me a second, because from my recollection, like a lot of them are non-white. Honestly, all I know is that it's Winston Peters' party, and that's it. Like I don't know yeah. anyone else. It's old mate Winnie, and I don't know his mates. I don't care. <laughs> Which is, I think, like the approach most New Zealanders take towards New Zealand first. Yeah, so um, Rob Mark, who's the sort of 2IC of uh, New Zealand first, is also Māori. He's, um, he's Ngāti Raukawa, Te Arawa, Tuwharetoa, Atiawa, Ngāti Pro. all of them, apparently. He's got wow. many iwi affiliations, Whakotea, Rangitani, Ngāti, Kahungunu, Ki, Wairapa. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> It happens. <laughs> um, and then Winnie, of course, is also a Māori man. But, like, I think that's that's where New Zealand's combination of white supremacy and xenophobia, like, gets really, really tense is because, like, xenophobia is aided and embedded by, like, you know, the vice prime minister. Is that what they're called? Deputy? Deputy, thank you. <laughs> by the deputy prime minister, by this political party that has a not insignificant Māori population within it who has had, like, Pacifica members in parliament before. Mm. Um, and I think by just simply saying, like, this is white supremacy in New Zealand as a colonial country, ignores the impacts. Like, 
And certainly, like, I would I would accept that the behaviours and beliefs of Winston Peters and Shane Jones definitely come from colonialism. Hmm. And I think it's very important to realise that at the very core of these beliefs, they come from colonialist behaviours from white people, right? Like, it's my fault, basically. Um, <laughs> like, And I think it's really important for me as a white person and other white people to own that, particularly ones who, like, like my family did, came over in colonial times. Like, mm. the problems that exist, they are a direct result of the fact that, like, I got to be raised upper middle class, right? Mm. Like, they come from the same core. Mm. But I think today you can't ignore the fact, and, um, of course, Shane Jones is Māori as well, um, today you can't ignore the fact that the xenophobic behaviours are aided and abetted by typically Māori men who are in our parliament. Like, you can't just look at New Zealand and be like, oh, the current, like, xenophobia is a result of white people. It's Mm. absolutely not. It's a result of colonialist beliefs, certainly, but is aided and abetted by people of a huge range of races. And it's a similar thing you often see in Australia, Mm. where, like, second-generation migrants tend to be super xenophobic and they're like, well, why are these people coming here? It Mm -hmm. was only okay in the 40s when my parents were, like, refugees from Italy. Yeah. Um, And I don't think Americans, even Australians, people from the UK, like, I don't think they understand that and I don't think they see that. Because to them, it's very much like, oh, white white supremacy comes from white people. Um, xenophobia comes from white people. When actually in New Zealand, it's much, much more complicated than that. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can't just treat it like a simple problem. Otherwise, you will not solve it. Yeah. I think it's also worth mentioning that um, when it comes to these alt-right groups, they specifically want to recruit um, people of colour and women Mm. because having people of colour, having women in their in their movement again, it's it's all a deflecting thing. It's all like a I'm not racist, look at look at all of our our friends who are people of colour. Look at all of our friends who are women. It's Milo Yiannopoulos, right? Yeah. It's um Lauren Southern. Yeah. And there is, uh, in the States, there is, like, a rising and very large group of black conservatives. Um, and when I say conservative, I don't mean, I don't mean conservative, I mean, like, black alt-right people, um, which is... Yeah. And I... Yeah. It's bewildering, yeah. Um, but I also suspect a lot of that will come from love bombing, essentially. Yes, yes. Yes. Well, I mean, I think, like, if we are going to use the word conservative in its original meaning, meaning, like, you know, traditionalist kind of thing, I think a lot of um, communities of colour do hold very traditional values to heart. And, And I think in a lot of ways, that is where they're legitimately um, at a loss for a movement that represents them. Um, and this is the other would, thing mm, that... I would, yeah? I would yeah, be hesitant on. to say that, mm-hmm. um, just simply because I saw in the marriage equality 
um, movement in Australia, um, migrants, particularly recent migrants, communities of colour, often got painted as people who are and who should be against marriage equality. Mm-hmm. And often they weren't. Mm. Um, it was a very, you know, it was a very Catholic migrants who certainly were, but it's often quite a um, a divisive move, I suspect, to yeah. paint, you know, sort of migrant groups, people of colour groups as being like weird, conservative, different. Mm-hmm. And that, to an extent, attempts to encourage what you're talking about, which is the um, communities of colour becoming more conservative. Mm. But I also suspect it's not true. Like, we got the map of marriage equality votes from Australia, and the place where you saw people voting no was only communities that were, like, extremely Catholic. Mm. And some of those aligned with migrant communities, I'll give you that, but they didn't all. And it was just this narrative that tried to separate out migrants and communities of colour and say, you're different, so you should vote no. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think something that's really... Uh, and especially like those of us who are more left-leaning, who care about social justice, like it is something for us to recognize that when it comes to uh, the speech and the discussion in in our circles, in our circles around social justice, that they that speech is primarily dominated by white folk, um, and that there is a void there. And this is the thing that the alt-right groups uh, take advantage of, uh, voids in speech. So when communities of colour don't see themselves, and like communities of colour might very well be absolutely for um, marriage equality, absolutely for choice, absolutely for like all these very progressive movements, uh, for, I don't know, like free university, for higher minimum wages, like, for all we know, yeah, that could absolutely line up. But th- because there is such a, an absence of, um, of not only representation, but, like, how do I say, like, an appeal to people of colour at the, I don't mean on the left, because obviously there's, like, a higher kind of representation on the left but at the very highest echelons and I'm talking about things like people who are running as leaders of political parties yeah um people in the US people who are running for president things like that and so what the alt-right does is they they see that void and then they fill it with their shit and this is why if you go on YouTube and you look at, you know, you're in a fresh account, and you look at any video, could be like a comedy video, could be a cooking video, could be a gaming video, literally any video, within about oh, five to ten autoplays, you will get to white supremacist videos, or misogynist videos, or, you know, incel videos, or something like that. And the reason why it's so prolific, and is because there is a a void of people making videos about and not a total void like there exist videos about feminism and there exist videos about social justice but just orders of magnitude difference here yeah 
Well, because it's, it's more dangerous yes. as well to make yes. videos about feminism and social justice. I think one of the really good comments that's been made sort of surrounding this you know, international discussion about, like, why aren't we tracking white supremacists mm. is that a lot of the women affected by Gamergate have come out and said, we told you about them. Like, yep. we have been reporting these people since Gamergate. <laughs> and no one took them seriously. <laughs> yeah. No one. Yeah. It's why you get a lot of um, anti-vax content as well because vaccinations you know amongst the general public uh they like scientists don't feel like they need to repeat things that have already been settled so things like gravity things like yeah i was gonna say yeah Yeah, okay things like gravity i would accept there are some things that scientists never shut up about yeah yeah have already been settled of course but like do you know what I mean? Like, you know, we as everyday people, we don't feel the need to repeat something that we feel, we believe that is uh, public knowledge. So we don't feel the need to go to a stranger and say, hey, did you know that the Earth is a sphere? Because of course the Earth is a sphere. Like, everyone knows this. And because no one, like, there's no kind of content ar- around these... Uh, facts that don't necessarily need repeating because we all know it because there is a void in that data then that's when flat earthers can come in that's when anti-vax people can come in and they can make some very very interesting and very uh convincing videos you know Mm. and so when it comes to these voids, these gaps in, in narrative or data, like that is another strategy that the alt-right, quote-unquote, uses. They are very good with propaganda. And I think that's something that we all need to internalize, but especially journalists, especially those who work in media, we all need to understand just how good and efficient these groups are with propaganda and we need to like journalists have a code of ethics right and they hold that very dear to their hearts and they they follow that very strictly and like all the journalists i know are incredibly good at what they do Uh, they believe in the value of what they do and they work really hard to uphold an extremely high standard of ethics. Something that they are not taught, and maybe they are taught this, um, but maybe it just seemed so unrealistic that maybe, you know, it was forgotten. But something that it seems like they're not taught is how to deal with online, specifically the online flavor of propaganda. And at some point, at some point as a journalist, you have to realize that you're helping them, you know? And uh, I, sorry, I'm going off on another rant. Oh, it's good. But it, yeah, it's frustrating. It's frustrating. <sighs> what a world we live in today. Hmm. Mm. Yeah. How, how are you? I'm okay. How it's have you been, been dealing God, I haven't. I've been ignoring it. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's usually how I deal with things. <laughs> um, 
I've mostly been ignoring the internet because I just knew it would explode with mm. terrible things. Um, and I didn't want to have to like see that. Yeah. Um, I've A sort of move. gone back on it the last couple of days, which is why I'm you know, coming back around and saying things, talking about what I've seen on Twitter. Mm. Um, but it's it's tough, right? Like, And you have all of these people who don't understand or really even care about New Zealand's political situation, like talking about it and then centering the wrong narratives. Like I, as much as anyone, approve of the boy who cracked an egg on Fraser Anning's head, right? Mm-hmm. I don't think that's a narrative we need to be centering. And I think like, yeah. you know, that's why we haven't really talked about it this episode. Like he's good on you egg boy but yeah no he he did well but and like it's horrific that he's like a 17 year old boy that was choked until he passed out yeah that's growing men like by like five of them right yeah yeah and it's also like fucked that like at that same meeting fraser anning like approved of the actions of the christchurch shooter like i mean like maybe we should be reporting on the fact that a sitting Australian senator has just been like, yeah, it's like chill that he killed 51 people. Um, mm. And I think that's probably something that Australian media should be reporting on of whether he's still fit to be a senator in that instance. Like 19 people voted for him. What if he wasn't on, like in the Senate? That'd be great. Mm-hmm. Um, but the narratives we need to center like are Islamic and then New Zealand Islamic people. And, mm. I'm not even, and I know I'm definitely in the minority on that, I'm not even a fan of how we've been talking about the people who died because mm-hmm. everything I've seen has been sort of framing them as, like, you know, brother, husband, son, like... Right. And I think it's important to relate to them to their community, but fundamentally, like, even if you had no family, it would be a tragedy if you were killed in that. mm Right? Like, even if you were the sole remaining member of your family, even if you had no connections to anyone else, except for the fact that you were Islamic and you decided to pray at that mosque that day, mm. it would be a fucking tragedy. Yeah. And so it, it, wor- it, it bothers me in the same way that, like, those ads about sexual harassment and assault that are like, she's someone's sister, mother, <laughs> yeah. blah, blah, blah. Like, those bother me. It's like, mm. well, I think... It's an event that targeted the community. Mm. And so I think it's important to talk about people's connections to that community. Mm. But I don't think that's, like, what we want the headline to be, right? We want the headline to be, like, they were people. Mm. They were New Zealanders. Some of them were refugees who mm. had thought that they'd escaped this kind of violence. Um, mm. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I'm just, I'm still trying to just listen a lot right yeah. now um and when i can i'll read i didn't manage to listen to the um the call to prayer yesterday unfortunately mm-hmm. um but one of my colleagues who's a new zealander did um and i think it was good that it was broadcast mm. i got i got actually um <laughs> the uh we had an event at work where the ceo talked about the events at christchurch and i just got like unexplicably angry about it Mm. because he was talking about it as if it had affected him and -hmm. i think that's that's good right like that's Mm. him showing empathy that's excellent to have in the ceo of like a fucking nine thousand person corporation Mm. but 
I think like, and that's just, you know, sometimes when you have a lot of emotions, they like spurt out the wrong valve, right? And I think that was just like my emotions accidentally coming out of the anger valve instead of any other valve, right? Mm -hmm. But I was just like, I cannot explain why I was furious, but I was so angry Mm. about like, and he was gentle and like his voice broke when he was talking about it. And there was a minute of silence and those were all really good things, which is why I keep coming back to like the word inexplicable. Like, and I was furious. Mm. And like in the moment, I couldn't even sort of take a step back and be like, why the fuck do you feel like this, Sophia? I was just like, this, there was something in me that was just being like, I don't want you to talk about this. I don't want, I don't want anyone who's not affected by this to be talking about this. Mm. And I mean, I can't control that, right? So I really want to not feel like that. Mm. Um, and I think it's, it's, I don't want to say unjustifiable, but it's not something I feel like I should be able to justify. Like I don't, it's not like I don't want to feel like that because, you know, I just, my feelings happen and I have to accept them. That's what my psych says. Um, but it's more like I can't control other people talking about it. And so mm. being angry about it does nothing. Mm. But at the time I was just, I was so angry. And also like, yeah. okay, <laughs> the other element to this is that at no point was he like, it was an attack on Islamic people. Right. It was an attack on New Zealand. And I'm just like, no, <laughs> he went to a mosque <laughs> on yeah. their holiest day. <laughs> Mm. but I think a lot of people will be going through the same kind of inexplicable anger because it was a really horrific thing that happened yeah no that's that's like it, it was horrific and we're going to have a lot of emotions for no reason and that's natural and normal and that's okay and I don't think anyone has to explain the the emotions that they're feeling and fuck New Zealanders especially we just suck at dealing with emotions (laughs) like like we don't know how to feel emotions so that's why we play so yeah. much sport <laughs> and have such a high rate of domestic violence. Oh, uh, yeah. oh I got sad again. Yeah. Um, but no, that's, I mean, anger is like a normal part of the grieving process, right? Like there've mm-hmm. been a lot of criticisms of the five step to grieving process, but often I find myself sort of cycling through them. Um, mm. And I mean, I think it's very natural when something terrible happens to be like, no, this kind of possibly happened. Mm. which was like my response like I saw I think I'd opened up like Facebook during the day at work like just quietly on my phone on the way back from the toilet and I saw the like a news article shared about it and I was like no today no New Zealand no and then I was texting you about it Mm. and like listening to Radio New Zealand and just crying a lot and like 
I think the really moving thing for me on Radio New Zealand was, and my my mom's a journalist, so I have um I have a lot of empathy, like mm. obviously for the victims, but also for the journalists in these scenarios because they can't just like not work. Like my job's really chill with me being like, I'm sorry, I have many feelings, mm-hmm. I have to go home for the day, thank mm-hmm. you. But when you're a journalist, like you have to keep going like it's your job to report on these things and you could hear yeah the journalist on radio new zealand like her voice breaking and like her crying a little bit and she was still doing her job and like sometimes asking like wild questions like when she was talking to the imam um of the main mosque she sort of asked like you know and are you okay and he gave like this deep sigh you could just feel that she knew that that was like an automatic question that came out of her because like no one knows what to do or how yeah. to feel yeah. when this has just happened. <laughs> um, and I mean, I was astounded by the strength of the imams as well. Like, you know, that an imam is a community leader, you know, that they're kind of like, you know, they're the mosque dad basically mm-hmm. like um, an appropriate uh, parallel is like a pastor in sort of a church but they handle, like, everything. Like, you go to them and you can chat about anything. Mm. Um, as well as, like, leading the prayer. They are just, like, they're the most approachable person. They know everyone. They remember everyone's names. And for them to lose so many people mm. and then come out and talk and help and still be able to just be like, well, you know, I – I support the community and we have lost some of the community and now we are continuing. And it was just, it was amazing. Like, Mm. I mean, nothing like this has ever happened before in New Zealand history, right? Like, so Mm. to see how people are responding, I don't want to say like inspiring because I don't want to be, I don't want to ever be in that situation where I have to be inspired to act like that. Mm. But it was incredible. Like, just amazing. Yeah. How are you going? Not great. (laughs) But, I mean, getting better. Yeah. So, I had all of this week and last week off of work to work on my portfolio. Because I haven't, you know, I haven't done that. So, I've been just doing that and... Uh, suffice to say, like, no work has been done on that. And all I've been doing is just burying myself in reading. <sighs> um, I think this is kind of like the, the very New Zealand way of dealing with emotions, which is not dealing with them, um, in which I've just been doing a lot of research uh, about extremism. And um, specifically about online extremism and just, like, I feel like my brain is cranking into overdrive because all I want to figure out is, like, what are the steps that we need to take to make sure this shit never, ever happens again? And I I I think there's going to be, like, multiple different things that we're all going to have to do and they're all going to have to, like, work with each other. Um, so, for example, the assault weapons ban, that needs to happen. And so that's happening, and that's good. Uh, 
but also you know simple everyday things like giving nothing to racism calling out our friends and our workmates when something like that does happen that needs to happen as well um but also and i guess the thing that i'm concentrating a lot of my time on is uh, how, like thinking about how we develop this kind of communal immunity towards propaganda and how we stop people from becoming radicalized from being introduced to these communities and then also like how do we then rescue people who have been radicalized from these communities um so i feel a little like my brain is on fire but um but i think i prefer feeling like my brain is on fire rather than actually like thinking about the the horrifics of what happened so you know dealing with it my own way (laughs) that's fair enough yeah 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 back to work next week which will be fun (laughs) yeah sure you'll do great um right thanks for listening to things of interest this episode we've talked about um the alt-right uh the nuances and political discourse and how there is no nuance in online discussions Basically, you have to take care of yourself and your brain and the people around you. Um, All we can really do to prevent radicalization is take care of our immediate people and make sure they're feeling sort of engaged and part of a community. Um, Can I give some bullet point tips on... Yeah, do it. Okay. So, how to protect your brain from propaganda. Um, Write this down. Remember it. Number one. Do not engage in comment section debate. Don't do it. Debate your friends in real life. Like, go to a bar, go to your library, your workplace, whatever. Debate them there. Do not do it online. This is not to say the debate is bad, but when you engage with them, it raises the profile of the shitty things that they're saying. So don't do it don't share misinformation even if you're making fun of it even if you're saying look at how stupid and ridiculous this is just don't do it number two everyone will have their own kind of things that raise red flags Um, for me when i see someone mention the word false flag when i see someone mention the word hoax even when i see someone mention the words rational debate or logic, or even free speech, that raises a lot of red flags for me for for alt-right propaganda. So that tells me that this is something made to bait me, and I'm going to disengage. Uh, if you really feel the need to, you know, if you feel that there needs to be some kind of uh, voice, public voice, that goes against what they're saying, say what you think, mute the conversation, and move on. Like, say what you think, block the person and move on. Report, delete, block at will. Seriously, it is going to be so much better for your mental health. Um, you can always, like, unblock them later, but just do what you need to do to protect your own brain. Um, do what Sophia did and get off the internet, especially in a time 
right after something so traumatic. Uh, there's going to be a lot of misinformation online. There's going to be a lot of just shit online. And taking time away from the internet and really spending time with your friends in real life can be really healing and really good for you. And the last thing, which I'm sure we already know, but there's is worth reminding us is don't share anything from the terrorist or their associates not names not photos like not writings nothing even if it's newsworthy even if you think people should know it like don't do it they've got a lot of signals and coded in jokes like we talked about and they're not meant for you they're meant for people to look up later and then get sucked into their community so don't share anything. Report it will. Just take care of yourselves. There's a lot of community events that will be on. Um, you can visit your local mosque and leave flowers, leave words of love and encouragement. Um, volunteer. Do what you can offline and take care of yourself, I guess. <sighs> So yeah. that's been us. I've been Sophia France. And I'm Serena Chen. And as always, stay interesting. And particularly this week, stay safe. <laughs>